We are going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. One of the things that I want to look at is this particular topic of resurrection. If you've got a passage, a copy of the passage open in front of you, that would be very helpful. Um, And what I want to try and do is outline four key points that Paul makes that flows out of this particular passage and gives us an opportunity to consider the claims that Paul is making and some of the implications that it has for us. One of the questions that we will start to address this week and explore much more fully next week is, what is the implication of what Paul is saying for us for how we see ourselves, answering this particular question of identity and who am I? When Paul wrote this particular passage, uh, you'll notice there that he makes four key points. I've highlighted there in blue in the text, and each one of these is a point that I'm going to make as I work through this talk in the next 20 minutes or so. And these four things that you can see here is that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. So let's jump in and consider these in that particular order. What is it that we can say with any confidence or certainty about the reality of Christ dying? Well, on one hand, uh, death doesn't come as a surprise for many of us. It may be that in our lived experience, we've had someone close to us, an immediate or a family member who has actually died. And so for us, when I say death is a reality, you say, yes, I've felt the very tangible nature of that. If that's not yet taken place uh, in your immediate experience, I suspect that purely just by observing the world as you would in sort of everyday life, you would recognize that death is a reality that humanity faces. We spent some time looking at that last week in public meeting when we looked at John chapter 11. We know, even if we don't readily accept it, that death is an uncomfortable reality. But I want to suggest to you that uh, one of the things that we can say about this particular statement that Christ died is also, therefore, that he must have been alive. You might say, well, that seems a little bit obvious, okay? But for some people, they will even refuse to accept that Jesus is a historical figure. So the claim that he died, well, it's just illogical if he never actually existed in the first place. But I suggest one of the things that we can say when Paul says, confidently, Christ died was the assumption that he was also alive. A couple of things to say here. Firstly, you'll notice that some Christian sources will talk about the life and the death of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're a little bit sceptical about all the claims that Christians make, you will say, well, of course the writings of the Christian faith would talk positively about the life and the death of Jesus. But before we get to the Christian sources, what about some of the other non-Christian sources that might indicate whether or not Jesus existed as a historical figure? Here I want to draw particularly on two areas, firstly what you will call the Greco-Roman historians and secondly the Jewish sources. When you consider the five or six pieces of evidence that the majority of historians accept as valid, reliable historical sources, I'm not talking Christian here, I'm not opening the Bible, these are Greco-Roman or Jewish sources, 
we can say five things about the claim that Jesus exists. I've listed them there on the screen. Firstly, the evidence is brief. Now, for some, things, for some instances in the historical record, we only have brief evidence for them. So the evidence in the Greco-Roman and Jewish sources for the existence of this man named Christ is brief and sometimes disputed. We could spend a number of lectures just talking about this. So my suggestion here is if you've got some questions or comments, please come and talk to me afterwards or use the Connect card that Isa was talking about earlier, put the questions and comments on the card, they will be passed on to me and I'll be able to either make a time to come and meet with you or actually give you some evidence, some further evidence. Secondly, it shows us though that a man named Jesus lived in Palestine, that he was executed under Pontius Pilate, that some unexplainable or strange things occur at the time of his death and that Christians, those who were followers of Jesus, continue to worship or revere him after his death. I'm not claiming that this is what the Bible says, I'm claiming that even if we had no evidence from the Bible, this is the claim that other parts of the historical record make for us. So what then of the claim that the New Testament is a historical document? Again, much that could be said here. A very brief summary, if you picked up a physical copy of the Bible, which some of you have got there in front of you, you might assume that it's one book. In reality, it's actually 66 different books that have all been bound together. When it comes to the New Testament, we have multiple sources written by different authors over a wide period of time, all attesting to particular aspects of the historical record. Some of the authors claim to have been eyewitnesses and what they're documenting is what they saw. Others recognise they are not eyewitnesses but have sought by interviewing and talking to people to give a true and accurate record of what took place. For the historian, these factors go to show the strength of the documents as historical sources. We'll talk a bit more about historical method a little bit later on. Many historians, and particularly using the account that Luke writes of Acts, are, are often surprised at how historically accurate the writings are. What you see documented in these narratives or in these writings matches with other evidence that we have from the historical record. Uh, the, the naming of particular cities at that particular period of time, uh, the cultures and the customs that are described in the biblical accounts, which actually correlate well with other history, uh, historical sources that we've got. So what else can we say there about uh, the claim that Jesus died and lived? I want to suggest also that the claim of his death actually reinforces his humanity. We know from our own experience that we have a limited lifespan. The expectation is that humans are brought into existence at birth and will cease physical existence at death. That Paul passes on as of first importance that Christ died, I think also goes to remind his readers that he was actually human, fully human. Not just some form of deity in fleshly appearance. Well, what evidence do we have for the death of Jesus? I think we've got a number of different accounts that show us that Jesus died. One of the Greco-Roman sources, I've listed it there from Tacitus, says this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Uh, this was written by uh, Tacitus about 125 AD. So sure, it's not written the year after Jesus' death. But not all history is recorded immediately after the event. Secondly, we also know, in terms of the evidence for the death of Jesus, 
that the Romans were actually very good at killing people. So the fact that Jesus was crucified by the Romans increases the likelihood that he actually died. Uh, let's do, um, uh, let's, not an ex- I'm not going to do an experiment on you. Uh, I want you to just take out your wrist. Just sort of hold up your wrist like this. Okay. Uh, try and find, there's two bones in your wrist. Anyone name the bones? Well done, you got it. That's great. Um, I couldn't remember and I had to ask some medical science students on Tuesday and Wednesday. What I want you to do is get one of your fingers, doesn't really matter which one it is, try and find the space between the two bones in your wrist, just down here. You found that sort of space, you can sort of push into it a little bit, can't you? Okay. One of the things the Romans realised was that when they started crucifying people, they actually originally drove the spikes through here. But as you realise, you've got lots of little bones in your hand and they break really easily and they don't support your body weight. So they then moved to putting the spikes through here. So just push in there a little bit. It sort of hurts a bit, doesn't it? Can you imagine if there was a steel spike about that big driven through your wrist with a really large hammer? Well, that's how they crucified people. One spike through each wrist, up on a cross. The Romans had practised this over many, many times. They were good at crucifying people. It has been indicated in other sources that crucifixion was the worst way to die in the first century at the hands of the Romans. It was not good. It was not pretty. It was actually very ugly and arguably barbaric. Most people died at crucifixion not through blood loss, some maybe from shock, but most from asphyxiation. Because when you're on the cross, you're, you are uh, nailed up on the crossbeam and your feet were then placed on a small block of wood that was nailed to the vertical bar of the crucifix. And that is on which you stood, and then they would then nail your feet into that bit of wood as well. They'd so designed the angle of it so that you had to keep pushing yourself up to open your chest cavity so you could keep breathing. Eventually what happened is you run out of energy, and so you end up just stooping like this. And if you ever do this, just if you go home, you don't have to do it now, go home and sort of stand in your room like this, see, knees bent a little bit like that, and just stand there and see how long you can stand there. And eventually, after a couple of minutes, your arms will start to ache, But over time, the weight of your body means that you just don't get enough oxygen and you end up asphyxiating. Some crucifixions took days. You didn't get down for a sleep at night, by the way. They just left you on the cross overnight. So what's the likelihood that Jesus didn't die from that form of punishment, from that form of execution? Interestingly, related to this, not only were the Romans good at killing people, but in the New Testament account, Pilate, the one who orders Jesus' execution, upon hearing that Jesus had died on that afternoon, after only being on the cross for about six hours, is surprised, genuinely. An indication that he was expecting that Jesus probably might have lasted longer on the cross, as was the case for many others. It's also interesting to note here that Paul's indication is that the death of Jesus is for our sins. Notice what he says there. The claim of historic Christianity is that the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is a grand announcement. The word that we use is gospel. That's just what the word gospel means, a grand announcement to all people. And the announcement is this, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a saving from death. Death as a consequence of the rebellion that all of humanity, you and I, and everyone who's lived before us and everyone who will live after us, carries out towards God, both individually and corporately. This rebellion, this break in relationship between us and God, is what the Bible describes as sin. It's first and foremost a relational category. 
And the reason why we need saving from sin, this break in relationship with God, is because the penalty against those who are out of relationship with God and break relationship with God, ultimately is death. And friends, that's why Jesus came to die and rise. That that penalty that is due to each and every one of us is paid for by Jesus in His death. This is the historical claim of Christianity. His death pays the price that you and I cannot pay. He restores the relationship between us and God. Which is why, I take it, Paul passes this on as of first importance. He wants all of his hearers, not only the Corinthian church to whom he writes the letter, but everyone who for the last 2,000 years has read that letter, to know that one thing. Why then does Paul use this phrase, according to the Scriptures? Well, when Paul writes, the Scriptures that he has is not what we would call the Bible, as we pick it up today. Paul is referring to the Old So why then does Paul use that phrase? I take it it's to remind his readers that the death of Jesus in redeeming people from their sins and paying that price for enslavement to sin has been predicted in the Old Testament writings before Jesus even arrives on the scene. So, for example, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Friends, that's what the resurrection of Jesus. We've talked about the death. Let's move to the second point that Paul indicates, Christ was buried. I think for many of us, we would expect that once someone had died, they would be buried. That's often the tradition in our particular culture and mostly, I suspect, the cultures that you come from. So why would this have been passed on to Paul as of first importance? A couple of things to say here. One of the key objections to the resurrection of Jesus is that perhaps Jesus wasn't really dead. Perhaps he appeared to die, and then when he was taken off the cross, he was resuscitated through some means, either a self-resuscitation or by others round about him. I want to suggest to you that our previous indication, just sort of take out your hands and do this again and be reminded of just how bad crucifixion is, is that the Romans would have been very thorough with their crucifixion methods. And so it's highly unlikely that Jesus was not dead when he was taken off the cross. The Gospel accounts indicate that upon the death of Jesus, a spear is thrust into his side to confirm his death. We know Pilate is surprised when the reporters come back that he's actually died. The Romans wanted to make sure that when they crucified people, they actually killed them. Why would they have sent the report if he hadn't actually died? Secondly, I think, given involve you being nailed on a cross, as bad as that was, and the Gospel accounts record for us that Jesus was fairly savagely beaten and flogged prior to going up on the cross, I think it's highly implausible that having resuscitated, Jesus would have been able to then come out of the tomb by moving a stone away from the entrance to the tomb. For in the day when they buried someone, they placed them in a a large hole, essentially, just hewn out of solid rock. Sure, it would have been cool, It probably would have been a more conducive environment to perhaps revive oneself or be revived. But you also have to remember, in placing the body in the tomb, and they did this to stop grave robbers or predators coming and getting the body, they also wrapped the body in a whole lot of cloth and covered it with a lot of spices, which weighed a heck of a lot. Not only do you have to be barely alive after being beaten severely and hanging on a cross for six hours, and then having a spear thrust in your side... 
you then have to work out, how do I get out of the grave clothes and get rid of all of the spices and stuff that have been put on me? How do I then roll away the stone and then I actually have to walk back into Jerusalem to appear before all these people? How likely is that, given what we know? Thirdly, and related to this is, when Jesus appears to people, and we'll come to His appearances shortly, He is similar but different. The marks in His hand and His side are still part of His resurrected physical body, but in some cases the disciples don't recognise Him. He's clearly undergone some form of physical change as a result of His resurrection. What else can we say? Well, a secondary objection is that the disciples visited the wrong tomb. That's why the tomb was empty. I think part of why Paul passes on, as was passed on to him, a specific reference to the burial of Jesus, is that it actually aligns with the early eyewitness accounts of some of Jesus' close followers. Upon the body being taken down from the cross and them witnessing his death, they then followed so they would know where his body was buried. His burial place is sure and certain. I suspect coming back to what I said earlier, if you have had a loved one who has died and they've been buried or cremated, I suspect if we asked you, you would know where that is. That's actually not uncommon given human nature. It's not uncommon given the practice of the day that people would want to then go to the body after it had been buried, maybe to revere, maybe to remember, maybe to visit and pay respects. I think it's highly unlikely that those who were his closest followers ended up at the wrong tomb on that Sunday morning. Secondly, if someone wanted evidence for themselves as to whether or not the tomb was empty, surely they could have just visited the tomb to see. So what then do we make of the claim that Christ was raised on the third day? Uh, notice here that the way in which uh, the Jews counted days was an inclusive way. If you've been at public meetings before, we did a little bit of this when we looked at John chapter 1. So, the Friday on which the day that Jesus was crucified, day number one. The Saturday, which was the Sabbath, it was a day of rest for the Jews, day two. Day three, the Sunday, the day on which Jesus has risen from the dead, which is why the biblical accounts indicate that He rose on the third day. Now, I suspect if there are sceptics in the room, I may be able to persuade you that Jesus existed historically, even on the basis of non-Christian sources. And so, that He died might not be overly contentious. However, the New Testament accounts indicate that not only did Jesus die, but also that He rose again. And at this point, you might say, well, hang on just a minute, I'll, I'll concede some, but I'm not going to concede this. Well, let's look at the evidence. The question we have to ask is, what can account for the empty tomb? Firstly, it's worth pointing out here that the testimony of the women as eyewitnesses actually strengthens the historical reliability at this point. Because back in the first century, the testimony of women was often less valued than the testimony of men. But the New Testament narratives don't shy away from this. If, for example, the disciples, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years later, after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection, wanted to actually make stuff up about who the eyewitnesses were, it's highly unlikely they would have put women in. Because the claim would have been dismissed very easily by those whom they started talking to. No, the fact that the testimony of women has remained in the account and the Gospel writers do not shy away from it, strengthens the historical reliability. 
Secondly, it's worth pointing out that surely the way to show that someone is still dead and hasn't come back to life is to produce the body. So if Jesus had not really died, why didn't anyone produce the body? The Jews wanted Jesus dead. They really wanted him out of the way. And if you read the gospel narratives and the accounts of the life of Jesus, life of Jesus continues. They will do almost anything to get Jesus killed. So why wouldn't they just produce the body? To silence the disciples once for all. Secondly, maybe the disciples took the body. And then they can actually make good on the story and genuinely try and claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Maybe they'd taken it and buried it somewhere else because they still revered him as their teacher and master. Let's just run with this for a minute. Just um, picture yourself, you're a disciple, you've been with Jesus for three years. Uh, The Romans have come fairly forcefully on sort of the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, They've arrived in the garden where you're praying with Jesus. A great mob of them have arrived, sorry, it was the Jewish leaders, not the Romans, with swords and clubs and they've arrested Jesus. What's your first thought? Well, I take it your first thought is to run and hide because they just took him. Maybe they're going to come for you next. One of Jesus' disciples, when he goes into the forecourt where Jesus is being tried, is not even willing enough to stand up and say, I am one of his followers. He is that scared of either physical repercussions or worse, even though he was just because one of, he, was, he was one of their followers. What's the likelihood that on that particular Sunday, the disciples get together? Maybe only two or three of Jesus' closest followers, maybe all 12 of them, and they say, you know what, let's get together and let's go and beat the Romans who are looking after the tomb. Let's roll the stone away. Let's take the body. We'll just move it a couple of tombs down and then let's go out into Jerusalem and say, hey, guess what? Jesus risen from the dead. How likely is that? I mean, sure, it might make a good movie, you know, like Expendables 12 or whatever it's going to be. (laughs) But we know when we watch that, that that's just pure fantasy. What's the likelihood that this is a plausible explanation for the empty tomb? Again, why does Paul use this little phrase, according to the Scriptures? Well, let me give a couple of ideas here. The first is that the Old Testament expectation is that God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. The Christ, God's Messiah, will not be allowed to see decay. Israel was expecting that all people would one day be resurrected. We looked at this last week at public meetings in John 11. Remember when Martha, when asked about whether or not she would see Jesus, says, yes, I know I will see him on the last day. Why then is the Old Testament expectation of the third day? Well, in the Old Testament, the language of third day is connected to two things. Firstly, a climactic reversal of fortune or expectation. And secondly, it's the day on which the Lord God will visit His people. The expectation and the trajectory of the Old Testament is actually towards resurrection. The claim that Jesus rises from the dead would to many seem far-fetched or ludicrous. I grant that. There'll be some in the room who will hold that position. But the Old Testament expectation is that if Jesus is who He claimed to be, God's Messiah, then you would expect that if He dies, He would rise from the dead. Your perspective about what He will do should be and ought to be informed by the claims He has made about Himself and the expectations about Him, assuming that the claims can be substantiated. So let me give you an example. Um, This is Glenn. Glenn doesn't know I'm going to do this. Uh, This is Glenn. Glenn owns a bike. 
Uh, Glenn doesn't really ride his bike very much, so much so that it's now living out in the garage. Uh, you wouldn't know that Glenn owned a bike. He never talks about it. He never puts any pictures on Facebook or Instagram about it. Um, and on Sunday nights, Glenn tends to like watching Netflix, catching up on, uh, I don't know, medieval history documentaries. <laughs> Person number one, Glenn. Got an idea about Glenn? Person number two, this is Patty, that's me. Uh, I own a bike, I enjoy riding my bike, um, I follow cycling, and if you talk to me at some point, I will talk to you about cycling. If you can find me on Facebook, my profile picture is someone on a bike, okay? I enjoy watching cycling on TV. Person one, person two. Third fact, April is the start of the spring classic cycling season in Europe. The spring classics are one-day races. They go for about 250 to 280 Ks in a day. That's how far and fast these guys ride. It's just unbelievable, okay? The first of them started a couple of weeks ago, okay? Given the pieces of information that you've got, April classics, what you know of Glenn with regard to cycling, and what you know of me with regard to cycling, who would you expect last Sunday night watched the Tour of Flanders? By the way, that's a spring cycling classic race. <laughs> who is more likely to have watched the race? See, it doesn't show you that Glenn or I did watch the race, but knowing what you know of each of us, who is more likely to have watched it? See, earlier in the Gospel accounts, Jesus indicates that he would go to Jerusalem, he would be handed over to the religious leaders, he would die, and three days later would rise again. The eyewitness accounts, post Jesus' death and resurrection, claim that all of these things have actually taken place. Now, even one objection to this might be, well, Jesus was not the only one to claim to be the Messiah. Yeah, absolutely, granted. There were many who claimed to be the Messiah. But were they able to make good on their claim, according to the historical record, according to those who lived at their particular time? What we're suggesting here is that the claim of the New Testament is consistent with the claims that Jesus made about what he would do. Look at the track record of Jesus. Is he God's Messiah? He has power over disease, power over sickness, restores sight, makes the lame walk, the deaf hear, drives out demons and raises the dead. He fulfills all the Old Testament expectations for someone who would be expected to come as the Messiah. It strengthens the likelihood that the best explanation for the evidence that we have before us is that he's been raised from the dead. Fourth point, Christ appeared. However, even one objection still may be that this may have created, if you like, a self-fulfilling expectation among the disciples so that their followers just see Jesus and start believing that he's back to life. Well, let me give you an example. It's a little bit like when you look up in the sky and you see clouds. And you go, oh, look, it looks like an elephant, okay? How many of you have seen an elephant in the sky? Think carefully about what you're about to say yes to. You see flying elephants? You see, sometimes the objection might be, well, it was created a self-fulfilling expectation. So, let's look at some of the appearances. The early accounts that we've got from eyewitnesses indicate a number of appearings of Jesus. Paul, in the, in the passage here, refers to a number of them. There were at least 
nine or ten that I'm aware of. And if you go through and read the New Testament accounts, there's about ten. These appearances are to a number of different people in a number of different locations at a number of different points in time. Some are on the one Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Some are a number of days later. Some are a number of weeks later. Some are up to 40 days after Jesus had died. What we know from the historical record and the writings of the New Testament is that the appearance of the risen Lord Jesus changes the manner of the disciples. They go from a group who are hiding away in a locked room, scared of the Jews, to within a month becoming a significant public presence in Jerusalem and declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed it and they declared it. They were willing to be beaten and imprisoned for it and many were even prepared to die for this. So strongly was it held by them. This doesn't sound like a group that have colluded and made up a great story. How long would they last under persecution? Surely one of them would break and go, oh no, actually, please, that's really, really hurting. I, we made it all up. Furthermore, it's particularly claimed that Jesus appeared to two men, James and Paul, as we read in this account who were at first unbelievers. So while you might expect that if Jesus appears to his close followers, they'll run with the story, what about those who are Jesus' enemies? What happens when he appears to them? From what we know of the gospel narratives and the person of James, he is Jesus' brother. During the life of Jesus, he was not a believer. However, what we do know is that at the Council of Jerusalem, James is indicated as being one of the leaders of the Christian church. One of the Christian writers in 200 AD once again records that James was a very devout Jew, but at some point believed in Jesus. What accounts for that? Paul indicates here that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to James. That was the thing that persuaded him. Secondly, Paul, who was previously known as Saul, went around killing Christians and persecuting them because they believed that not only was Jesus God's Messiah died and risen, actually saved them from their sins. Paul, whose whose name was Saul, his life is radically changed and reshaped and he becomes the greatest advocate and missionary for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What causes this change? Why does this man do this? Paul's conversion, as he records for us in a number of different places, was because he had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ firsthand. So to conclude, how is it that we know things? There's five different ways that we can point out. We know things through at least these means and processes. There's there's rational knowledge. So for example, trigonometry, where you derive a mathematical proof based on particular rules of trigonometry. There's scientific knowledge using the scientific method. Those things where you produce a hypothesis which you test, And you test it how? By observation and repetition. There's historical knowledge, that knowledge that's derived from historical method, where you examine things that have taken place in the past to what? Determine the likelihood of their occurrence. There's subjective experience, the emotions that we feel that tell us things. And there's revelation as a form of knowledge. So, for example, I have a middle name. But I'm fairly sure that you will not actually, and some of you might not, please don't call it out, it ruins the illustration. I do have a middle name, but you can't discern it using scientific method. You can't discern it 
using some sort of rule of trigonometry. You can't just observe me and know my middle name. Is my middle name a valid form of knowledge? Actually, our names are valid forms of knowledge. They say things about who we are, who our parents wanted us to be. You actually don't know my middle name until I reveal it to you or until someone else who does know it reveals it to you. Five broad different ways of how we know things. The nature of historical inquiry is the task that one must undertake as they investigate the claims that Christianity makes about the person of Jesus. And historical inquiry applies a number of different tests to the information that we have at hand to determine the best explanation for the event in question and the likelihood of it having occurred. The factors that will increase the strength of the claim to historical reliability include the five that I've put on the board. Is the event attested to or pointed to by multiple independent sources? So if you went to a party on Saturday night, but you're the only one who claims to have been at the party, I'm really sorry that none of your friends came. But if you're the only one who claims to be at the party, I suspect there's greater doubt that it actually was a party. But if I can find 10 or 15 people who all independently describe what took place, it raises the likelihood that the event actually took place. Secondly, attestation by non-favourable sources. So here we point to things like the Greco-Roman historical sources, the Jewish sources, embarrassing admissions in the historical record, such as the fact that the record retains that women were the first eyewitnesses. At the time, a very embarrassing thing to include. The eyewitness testimonies, those who actually saw it firsthand, stronger than those who interviewed the eyewitnesses. And the time between the actual event taking place and when the historical event was recorded, the earlier the time, the earlier the testimony, all of these things raise the strength of the historical inquiry and the likelihood of the event taking place. Here we see many, if not all of these factors, being shown to be present when assessing the historical claim that Jesus lived, died, was buried, three days later rose again and appeared to many. Friends, the Christian, of which I am one, cannot prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the nature of historical inquiry is it cannot produce a proof. By its method, it cannot offer proof. Historical inquiry weighs the evidence and provides likelihood. That doesn't mean that the event did not take place, as is the case for all things that have taken place in the past. Also, when it comes to historical inquiry, we tend to look at the cumulative evidence to determine likelihood. And in this particular case, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have much evidence to consider. So here we have a claim about a historical event with a number of different sources of evidence. And the question is, what is the most likely explanation? The surety that Christians have is that having looked at the evidence, they consider that the most likely explanation is consistent with the claims of the early eyewitnesses. That the man Jesus, who lived among them, was crucified by the Romans, died and was buried. Three days later, he was alive again. The Christian claim is that God raised him from the dead. And this is the historic claim of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus is at its centre a saving message. It's a message which offers salvation and rescue from sin to a restored and right relationship with God. The hope that Christians have is that the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates power over death. 
the one thing that you and I do not have. No matter how much we wish, we could live forever. And the hope that Christians have is that those who trust in Jesus before our physical death, but also that when we die physically, we will be in eternal living relationship with Jesus forever. I hope that you can come and join us next week as we consider some of the implications of what this claim makes. As we wrap up, uh, something that Christians like to do is pray, and that's where we are able to talk to God. Um, So if you'd like to join me with that, please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, in your great mercy to us, you sent your Son. Um, We thank you that he lived that he died, that he was buried, and that he uh, rose on the third day, and that because of that, um, we have a saving message and, um, yeah, saving grace, Lord, that uh, allows us to come into a right relationship. Um, Father, we thank you um, for your message being proclaimed truthfully today. Uh, Father, may this uh, change our hearts. Um, Help us, Lord, to respond to this and not um, just let that uh, sit in our heads, but may that be something that uh, we think about and apply to our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be shaping us uh, more and more into the image of your son and I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week.